passage you're looking at tonight, if you will, and that is Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. We're going to get there in just a minute. And I don't intend to be real long tonight, um, and I don't also intend to have too many more weeks. I'm talking about music. I've got a bunch of things that I think are going to be very important and very helpful for us moving forward as far as what I believe and why, and different uh, standards and, and things like that that we need to set in our church, and music is one of those standards. And so I think it's very important that we take time to go through these things. Um, and I know we've been we've been we've been working on this music uh, issue for a long time, but it's very important that we understand number one why our music choices matter. What we listen to all the time matters. What I want to do tonight is talk to you about the purpose of church music. Why do we why do we sing the music that we sing? And essentially, what this is going to be tonight is a long introduction to the next couple of weeks, which is basically what is wrong with contemporary Christian. Um, this is very, very foundational that we understand this to get to that point. Um, obviously, you, you know very well that we don't do contemporary Christian music here, and I and I harp on it all the time about the contemporary churches and the the way they do church, not just their style of music. That's only a part of it. But the way they do church and why they are the way they are, and honestly, why they completely lost the focus on the gospel. I'm not saying that music has everything to do with that, but music has a lot to do with that because your musical philosophy is going to change a lot of your church philosophy, and vice versa. Um, but what you establish as your musical philosophy is going to establish a whole lot of what you do in your Christian life. Too. So, uh, why do we have music in the church service? The answer to that question really is going to reveal the underlying music philosophy. And that philosophy is going to completely influence the musical. Direction, and then that musical direction is going to completely influence the culture of that church. It's going to completely influence the DNA of that church. We're going to talk about some, some of this next week. Well, oh, actually, next week is not going to be at all. We're going to do church music tonight, but uh, the weeks after that following. Why is it, though, that, you, that, that in most of these churches now, you see the pastors that are getting up there in ripped jeans and sweatshirts and all that kind of stuff, right? Why is it that when you see a church start moving in a more liberal direction, that all of a sudden all the ties come off, you know, the zip codes end up coming off? And why does that happen that way? A lot of that has to do with music, but here you've got musicians that are up on the stage, and they're, they want to look like a musician, right? So they throw their hair out, they wear their little stocking caps, and they got their ripped up jeans and skinny jeans and all this other stuff on it. They're rocking out because I'm a musician, right? Well, now the pastor comes out dressed in a shirt and tie with a short haircut and he sticks out. He doesn't belong there, right? And so everything in that church begins to change to match the culture of the music. And the music really influences everything else that happens in the church. Why do all these churches go to where now they all got purple lights and you know dark auditoriums and everything else? Why do they do that? Because that fits in with the musical mood, right? And if that's been doing the musical move, well, you can't just, okay, the music's over, turn all the lights on, put all the fog machines away, right? It has to stay that way because you're setting the mood for the music. And, and, it, and it really comes down to just a completely wrong philosophy about church, which is going to lead to a completely wrong philosophy about music, and then that musical philosophy is going to influence the DNA and the culture of that entire church. So 
it's so important. One of the reasons for that is because music is a bigger part of timeline of the church's service than just about anything else other than preaching. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about how much music we do. We have an offering, and there's music. Right? We have a fellowship, and there's music. We have hymns, which is music. We have specials, which is music. I mean, the entire, almost the entire part of our service leading up to the preaching is all revolving around music, right? That's a huge part of what we do in the churches. Music takes up more time in the church's weekly schedule than prayer, than, than meetings, than uh, discipleship, and evangelism in a lot of places, more time than fellowship. And in fact, in a lot of churches, music takes up way more time even than the preaching, right? So there can be no doubt that music is highly influential in the life of the average Right? We are inundated with music. You go anywhere and there's going to be music. You go to the store, there's music. You go to the gas station, there's music. You go into uh, a restaurant, and there's music. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's part of our cultural DNA as Americans, if you will. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, I've heard of this woman before, Lady Gaga. What a dumb name for her. I'm sure that's not a real name. You can't you name your kid Gaga. I don't know what her real name is, but she's a popular, popular singer. And uh, she's won a lot. I had to look this up. But she's won 11 Grammys. She sold over 150 million tickets. I mean, very, very, very popular person. She did an interview that aired on ABC. And I, I think she did it with MTV, but ABC actually aired the interview. She was asked how she became the way that she did. And it's, it's very ironic because uh, one of her earlier albums has a song that's called Born This Way. I've never heard it on anything about it, but she said on ABC News, this, is, this comes from May, May 26, 2011, almost 10 years ago, and she said this, they asked her, How, why are you the way that you are? And I think she's kind of out there, I think she's one of these, like, I don't, I don't know if you call her like a shock musician necessarily, but she just does whatever she wants to do, you know, this is how I do my conversation. She said this, don't spoon feed me the Beatles and Stevie Wonder and Bruce Springsteen and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Elton John and expecting me to not turn out this way. In other words, what she's saying is all of my musical influences made me who I am. Don't feed me all that music and then expect me to not be like this. How important is it then that, that what you listen to, you know? Uh, and that statement, that, that music is highly influential, applies to the church's music services as well. Don't feed me all this contemporary Christian music. Don't feed me all this rock music, which is exactly what most of it is. Don't feed me all this stuff and then expect the church not to be the way that it is. Right? right? Uh, no less of a guru than Rick Warren said this in, in his best-selling book, The Purpose of the Church. He said, once you have decided on the style of music you're going to use in worship, you have set the direction of your church in far more ways than it will determine the kind of people you attract, the kind of people you keep, the kind of people you lose. In other words, a church's music style directly affects everything about that church and what it's going to become. And he was he was saying in his paper, you know, oh, we ought to have this contemporary music. We need to draw all these people in. And, but he couldn't have said anything truer than what he said. Once you set the church's musical direction, that is going to set the direction for the church far more than you realize. And I think a lot of churches have missed that. They're trying to, oh, we want to be godly, we want to be this, we want to expose the world, we want to do all this kind of stuff, we want this kind of music at the same time, and they just don't take Because you cannot have a DNA of a church that's moving in a really godly direction that has all this kind of music that they're playing. 
those some things are going to change. The reason why you do those things are never going to change unless you have a philosophical breakdown and you start over or something like that. So um, reasons are more permanent than actions, and because of that, they're very telling. Why you do something is going to determine what the what is. So anybody can see where a person or an organization or a church is, but what I want to see is where is that church going. And the direction that the music is going in, the church is not far behind. I'm telling you, one of the, one of the things that you see happen the first, first time you get into a strong, independent, fundamental Baptist church that is going in the right direction and, and really on fire for God and really doing things, and they get a younger pastor in maybe, and, and all of a sudden, you go back to the church church where you church where you played it, and it's nothing like it was. You say, how did the church change so quickly? It's music change. Whatever direction that music is going in, it's not long after that that the entire church is going to move in that direction. Yep. You see a church's musical philosophy and musical standards start to slip, everything else is right behind Everything else is right behind So tonight, why does our church choose to use and perform the style of music that we do? What's our underlying philosophy? Let me give you just, uh, just a few things about the purpose of church music. Number one, our philosophical approach to church music for those who summed up in, in one word, and that is edification. The purpose of our church music is to edify the brethren. Now, a lot of people get that wrong. Even if you have been from the from Baptist church, right? We want to come and we want to worship God with our music. That's wrong. Not worshiping God with our music. Now, we can hopefully not please by our music. And, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if, if our purpose unscripturally shifts from oh, anything else, then we're going to we're going to break with our church DNA changes and our church culture changes. I already talked about that a little bit, but to help us protect that, our musicians, and I say that in a broad broad scope, the people who play the piano and the instruments and the singers and the choir and everybody else, our musicians' influences need to be churchy for the world. Oh, churchy is the word, but, but your influence needs to be the influence of the church type music far more than the world type music. So um, here's where I want to look at a couple of passages because the vast majority of the references in the Bible to music are in the Old Testament. Um, but of the few that are in the New Testament, only three passages are specifically set in the context of the church. So I want to look at all three of those passages tonight. And um, we're, we're going to be pretty quick with these things, but I want you to see these. And the first one is there in Ephesians chapter 5. And this one, I think, is probably the most clear of all of the passages that we're going to look at um, about what the purpose of music in the church is. And if you, if you go back and look at Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the local church. And he says this in verse number 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Now, we'll go back to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to talk about these two passages together because they really go hand in hand. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16. This is the second place that, that music is listed in the Bible in the context of church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now those verses are very similar. They basically say the exact same thing, but this singing is done to the Lord, 
that does not necessarily mean that it's primarily for his benefit. Right? Like any other work that we do, we should sing in church heartily as unto the Lord. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, right? And so when we sing, we're doing it for the Lord. We're doing it as if we're singing to the Lord um, in the sense of seeking to please God with our music rather than seeking to please men, which, by the way, is another reason why we do the church music that we do. Right. And another reason why we don't clap at the end of a song and all that kind of stuff. I know Miss Diana said sometimes you want to clap. And, and you know, that, that's kind of a natural reaction. You want to, but the thing is, when somebody gets up to sing, they're not singing to please you, right? We're singing to please the Lord. And we're not up here performing, right? Even though that's, you, you call it, you're performing a, a, a special or something like that, but we're not up on the stage trying to draw the applause. We're not doing it to, wow, that was beautiful. Oh, congratulations, you're so great. You know, folks, we're doing it for the Lord. Right. We're doing it for, for his benefit. But these two passages are very clear. Church music is primarily designed to benefit the people who are assembled there in the church. Right? What does he say? And you're there in Colossians chapter 3, so let's look at that one. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we're doing it as unto the Lord. We're not doing it for his benefit. We're doing it for the benefit of those who are in the churches, right? He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're not speaking to the Lord, right? So it's corporate music, and by that I mean like the music in the church sense. We're speaking to ourselves. We're teaching and admonishing one another. So in, in plain language, we see that the church music is designed to edify the church. I want you to look at one more passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Music was designed to comfort those that are in distress. Right? Think about all the songs we sing about what society we have to do. Or did you think you pray? Songs that are convicting. Songs that is that does that benefit God? Is that convicting to him? Did you need to pray? Right? What a friend we have in Jesus. Is that is that singing to him? No, it's singing for the edification of everybody that's in the audience. Not at 
I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. Well, speaking in tongues, that's a prayer language. It's a heavenly language. And so when I'm jabbering on, God understands it, even though I don't. No, it says, I will pray with the understanding also. Right? If you're praying, you have no idea what you're saying. You're not praying with the understanding. You're jabbering in a language you don't even understand. So how can that be praying with understanding? Right? Now, the same thing is true when it comes to music. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So it's music in the church was for God, the same way that it's speaking in tongues is for God. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter what language you were in. You would understand. You would understand the praying, and you would understand the singing, right? But it's not. Music in a church service was designed primarily to edify the saints that are assembled there in the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 there, verse 46. How is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you has a song, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done unto, say it, edifying. Right? You got a song? Let it be done to edifying. He doesn't say let it be done to worship. He says let it be done to edifying. We're singing to edify the saints. It only edifies me if I can understand it. So you can see then why it's very important that our church music be understandable for the purpose of edification of the brethren, right? Now, you might ask, okay, but why does that matter? Why is that important? Because when your intentional purpose for music in church is different than what I just explained, it starts to take your, your music in some bad direction. Uh, over time, given enough growth, an incorrect philosophy of music is application of church music. And that becomes hardwired in the church at the end of it. And eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be errors everywhere. You give, it, you give that enough growth, you're going to end up hanging yourself. That's what it comes down to. So, I don't want to get into it too deeply tonight, but I, want, I do want to look at uh, just a little bit of how CCM approaches music much more widely than that. And why contemporary Christian music not something that we would do in our church services. And uh, like I said, I'm going to spend the next couple of Sunday nights talking about that and hopefully wrapping that up. But I want to, I kind of want to introduce it this way tonight because the sad truth is that in American churches, uh, what I'm going to broadly label as the contemporary movement because it's not just music, it's contemporary and music. And again, it starts with music. But once you move in that contemporary music direction, then you're going to be in a contemporary direction with everything else. Um, but they don't understand that purpose of music in Christ. They don't look at it as edification of the saints. They have a lot of other reasons why they do what they do. So that lack of understanding leads to that errant application in their music choice, in the music style, the way they sing it, that directly uh, impacts how they do church music. So how does the contemporary movement do music? Well, number one, they use music to draw and hold people. In other words, they use it to evangelize. And I'm not saying that somebody can't hear a song, Jesus loves me, this I know, and get saved, or, or be drawn to Christ because of it, or hear other songs about, uh, you know, hell or something like that, and, and be drawn to accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'm not saying that somebody cannot get saved because of that, but that's not the primary purpose of why we do that Um, I'm not broad brushing them, these contemporary churches, or even saying something that they themselves don't. They are very forward about the fact that they use music to draw people in and hold that crowd. Now, for 
example, it's very common for, for some of these trendy denominations. It's New Life Community Church, Willow Creek Church, New Life Covenant Church, lots of different churches that, that are all in this category together. But they, it's not uncommon for them to come in and do what is effectively a friendly takeover of an existing independent church. And the way they do that is, you know, they target these churches that are struggling. They come in, they offer to restart the church under their brand name, and the few remaining people that are left in that church are folded into that new congregation. The, the previous pastor, whoever he happens to be, is, is given a generous severance package, and, and they said, ah, all of a sudden you have a new campus that's started out of this big mega church, or big mega whatever you want to call it. But in the process, that trendy denomination uh, convinced the handful, or convinces the handful of the existing people of the new campus that they have to change everything in order to attract more people in. And so they do. They change the music. They change everything. And then they say, see, look, it worked. You're growing. This was a nothing little church, but now look, you changed all of this stuff, and you're growing. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, maybe they didn't say it out loud, but I mean, obviously the reason your church wasn't growing was to the point of when the church was dying. Because you're clinging to the old-fashioned music style and the old-fashioned church style. And nobody likes that anymore. If we're going to get this restart off the ground, you're going to have to change your music. They use that music to draw people in and keep people in. Now, I've said this many times before as well. If you are using something that's contemporary um, or something that is, is not biblical to draw people in, then in order to keep them, you're going to have to continue to do things that are more unbiblical to keep them there. Right? You can't just have a... Uh, what happens with, with uh, these groups that that um, change their music just a little bit to try to get people in this, they end up having these horrible groups that nobody wants to listen to anyway, right? So, oh, no, no, don't, don't leave, Let's, we'll change this too. Or you don't like that, okay, okay, don't leave, we'll change this too. And the next thing you know, that church is not even the same church that it was anywhere close to the same church that it was before that started. But they introduce music in order to attract interest, to draw people, to hold people in that church. These, these megachurches are doing the exact same thing with their existing churches by starting new venues, new services that, that cater to those who like to, who like white rock and gospel and traditional hymns. This is, this is one thing that I don't understand either. You know, a lot of these churches nowadays that are trying to be all things to everybody, they have a, an early traditional service and a, you know, a regular contemporary service. Take something and be it. You know, either be traditional or be contemporary. You can't, you can't be both. It's two totally different systems of church. Right. They're trying to be everything to everybody so that they can draw people in however they have to. And in some in some ways, Paul says that I made all things to all men. That's not what he's talking about. We're talking about compromising so that people can experience what it means to be written. The thing is, when you compromise, you bring people in, and you're dumbing down the gospel and everything else. So yes, you might be bringing people in, but they're not being converted. Right. They're not being changed. They're not being convicted about anything. Well, what is it to convict them about? You change to be more like the world. You draw a crowd, and you've got the crowd, and you preach to them the world. What are you doing differently? So, it's not just about getting people in, getting people in. Yes, it's getting people in to preach the true gospel to them, but it's to help them grow as Christians. And if you, you dumb down Christianity and water down the worldly Worldly down Christianity to get to that point, then you've done no good. You got a crowd. 
The Super Bowl draws a crowd. Concerts draw a crowd. Right? Just because you've got a crowd doesn't mean you're doing it the right way. So when they do that, that doesn't determine you're doing songs, they choose the style, the things that they wish that they performed it in. And listen, I, I don't doubt their sincerity. There may be some people who doubt their, their sincerity, but I don't. I've talked to enough of these pastors, even in this area, that I believe they genuinely think that the best way to reach the lost and the holiness in, in, in their churches is to offer a church environment that the kind of uh, music that the unchurched people like will like. So that they'll come. But see what, what happens. And, and all you gotta do is find many of these big non-denominational churches around here, go onto their website and watch them. Doesn't take long for you to realize, man, they're, they're, they're so loud. So they got the music, and they got the crop, and they got everybody coming in, and then they have the church music, they start baptizing people left and right. That's not salvation. That's not salvation. I thought to my friends personally. I won't even say who it is. Most of you wouldn't know who it is anyway. But this, this lady went to one of these churches around here, and I saw that, you know, and I've been inviting her here for a long time, trying to get her to church. And uh, just, just uh, kind of a business acquaintance type thing. And uh, we tried to get her in. Great lady. Loves, loves our kids. Loves our family. Is just as personable as can be. Ends up going over to one of these churches in this area. I see that she posts on Facebook. I took the plunge. I got baptized this morning in the church. Never been back to that church. Doesn't have any idea what salvation is. Obviously, based on a lot of posts. I don't, I don't follow Facebook but so closely anyway, but you know, you see these things here and there. They got her in. She enjoyed the service. She got dumped under the tent. She thinks she's a Christian. She's not. And in a lot of ways, they're doing a whole lot more harm than good. Because you've got this crowd, and you've got, you got them wild, you know, warmed up to the message, and then you put some weak water down, nothing on the gospel, and you've got her wet. And now, now she thinks she's a Christian, she doesn't have anything to do with church, but she really needs to be saved. And now she has no idea. So if I were to talk to her again and ask her if she knows that she's saved, oh yeah, uh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've accepted Jesus Christ, right? When in actuality, all she did was take a very quick bath, right? And have no idea what she did. They're doing so much more harm than good when it comes to and I'm not saying that all of it is done because of the music, but that has a huge driving force behind all of that stuff. So I'm not doubting their sincerity. I think they really do genuinely want to reach the lost. But I think there's going to be a huge pile of them that are in that verse. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name, done many wonderful works. Cast out devils, did all these things. And she's saying, I don't even know who you are. Sincere, but lost. I think that's what describes a lot of the pastors in the church. I don't even think they're saved. They have no idea what they're even talking about most of the time. That's one of the reasons why they go in that direction. It's all about going to the crowd and building the church. And that's the end. That's the end. The end all be all, if you will. Their, their sincerity is, is not protecting them, and it can't be protecting them in this process. So, the pragmatism, pragmatism is the end justifies the means. The pragmatism in that approach produces all kinds of worldly confusion. We have spoken ourselves many times. The simple truth is that there's not a single scriptural example of teaching in 
instructing us to use them. Music as a means of evangelism. Nowhere in the Bible do you do Understand that First Corinthians chapter nine verse two says, "I lay all things to all men." Paul says that, but the context of that statement has zero to do with music. It doesn't have anything to do with Paul on Corinthians and all these charges. Paul was contrasting observing aspects of Judaism, ceremonial law, with the clear uh, exercise of the Gentiles. And I realized that the Philippian jailer got saved after Paul and Silas sang at midnight. He didn't get saved because they sang. He got saved because of the conviction of what they were doing and how they were doing it. It was the fear of God that was put into his heart by the earthquake and, and the, the knowledge that Paul and Silas were Christians. That's why he said, What do I need to do to be saved? He was convicted by the fact that Paul had enough character to stay in prison when he could have ran out with everybody else, kept everybody else there. That's what convicted that Philippian jailer, not the music that they were singing. I have no idea what they were singing that, that night, but God's chosen means of evangelism is preaching. Preaching is pointed, it's confrontational, it's, it's explanatory, it breathes that conviction. And, and music, on the other hand, especially music dealers who desire to be a lost person. Much more enjoyable than the conviction. Right? You don't bring people in to give them music that they hate. The music that's going to convict them or anything like that, right? That's not why these churches are doing that kind of music. They're doing it because they're saying, hey, come up there and you know, do the music with us. You're going to love it. It's enjoyable. And people walk out saying, what? Oh, we had such a wonderful worship experience. Hundreds of them have not even seen. How did you have such a wonderful worship experience? What a question. It was music that was tailored to the world, tailored to fit worldly minded people who are not saved that are brought under no conviction. It's the preaching of the word of God. Contemporary churches are not aiming at conviction anyway. That's the last thing they want. They're making they're, they're aiming at making the unchurch feel comfortable so they'll keep coming back. For what? I mean, they ought to be aiming at the Holy Spirit making them more comfortable. But they use music, first of all, to evangelize. Secondly, they use music to cultivate the intensity of closeness, praise, and worship for the Lord. They use it for worship. And I, you know, we've talked about this already, but, you know, like saying that worshiping the Lord through music at church is unscriptural. I'm not saying that it's unscriptural, but I'm saying that aiming your music at that, developing a music program for the purpose of producing worship is unscriptural. Because as we already talked about, purpose of, of singing is to edify the brethren. It's not to worship the Lord. Right? It's not sinful. It's just short-sighted. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but worship is our response when we see God. Right? And that can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be just in a church service. When, when you see God in a real way, that's, that's what worship is. And that's uh, worship is our response when we see it. But in the Old Testament, we, we don't come to church. Or sorry, in the New Testament, God, come to church to be edified, come to church to be convicted, come to church to, to be better prepared to serve God. We have all kinds of passages. I'm not going to take the time to read this tonight, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, verse 15, 12 through 14, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Lots of different verses that we look at that the whole purpose of why we're doing this is not to worship God, although in a church service that is possible, our music is aimed services are being edification. Contemporary churches overwhelmingly use music to, quote, usher people into the presence of God. 
see that on their front page of their website and everything. We want a worshipful experience to usher people into the presence of God. So that's how the purpose of the church service. In fact, that mindset severely limits worship. Um, in the mind of the congregation, in terms of worship, it's something I feel yeah. rather than you know, rather than something else. I remember. Um, you know, music is an emotional language, and so that worship is something I feel in the person when the music plays. So I can only really worship God when the music is playing, and I can lift my hands. I don't want to say there's anything wrong with that, right? Okay, lifting up holy hands, we see that in the Bible, right? Nothing wrong with lifting up your hands and testify, hey, that's me, I was a sinner, I'm saved by grace. But it's not to worship God, it's to edify me, it's to encourage me, it's to remind me of just what Jesus Christ has for me. So it's not an emotional experience, but when you come into the church service saying, this is worship, we're here to worship God, then you associate that emotional feeling that music gets, because music is emotion, right? It's an emotional language. So now, only when I feel that emotion rise in me can I actually God. So if I'm sitting at home at my desk reading the Bible, I can't be worshiping God because I don't have that emotional experience to go along with it. Yeah. Or if I'm going to be sitting at home at my desk reading my Bible, then I got to have that music playing in the background to bring that emotional experience up so that I can actually worship God. Music is the emotional language. And so then, along with limiting worship, that mindset short circuits the true worship of the ability to discern the Christian. It gives it over with no commitment needed to. And, I, and again, I, I'm not trying to judge their motives. I think a lot of those people are sincere. I think in a lot of ways they do think that they are really worshiping God and really serving God and everything else. But they are very carnal in the way that they do everything in the church service. And what it does is it takes the mindset from those who are really trying to serve and worship God and gives it to the people who are the most carnal. It says, this is what real worship is all about. Only when you stop the band jamming and the, the musicians, you know, Rocking out in the in the in the worshipful experience, can you really worship God? That's the exact opposite of worship, right? I'm not going to go down to a concert in Innsbruck and expect that I have a worshipful experience. But then you play the exact same music and put a couple of Christian words to it, and all of a sudden it's worship, and that's the only way that you can truly worship God. It doesn't happen. Worship has become something that people feel while the lasers bound, the fog machines are blowing, and people sway. The Drummers are pounding away, and the worship leaders hopping up and down, you know, practically swallowing the microphone. No matter how far from God the people in the audience were when they were watching the worship, they come in and they think, I can really worship God. You don't even know who Jesus Christ is. You weren't worshiping God. I don't know what you were worshiping, but it wasn't God. And that music did not bring you into a worshipful experience. Right. You feel close to God because they feel something. And the music is at its desired effect. People are trying to make you feel. They want you to feel like you're closer to God. They want you to feel like you've had that worship experience. Meanwhile, the entire thing is trying to conduct actual worship. Because it wasn't demanded to serve. Here's the last thing, and very quickly the third thing that we consider for you Christian movement uses music for it to entertain. You don't have to listen to that very long. Right? That's how you keep an audience coming back. Yeah. 
wouldn't recommend that you do it for very long, but go, go look up Hillsong. Go look up their services. Go look up Bethel or some of these other, you know, leading contemporary Christian movements and go watch one of their services. I've done it from time to time. You will be so surprised. At, at, and I've never been to an actual music concert either, but I've seen the setup and, and different things. You would not have any idea that you are watching a church service if you watch the service at Hillsong. You have no idea unless you sit there for 10 minutes and really pay attention to the words and you say, they're actually singing about Jesus and they're singing about God. Every one of these musicians looks exactly like a musician in the world. A stage is set up, and, and I've, I've seen these before too, but it's not, it's not, there's a stage up front and an auditorium. It's, Entire audience is surrounding the stage, and the stage has got you know long walkways and big bubbles on it, and all this stuff. Where you, you know, this guy is doing his feature right now, so he's out there, you know, playing his you know guitar solo special, you know. And then the, 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 it pans over to somebody else that's on another one of these little bubbles at the end of the catwalk, you know, and then walking back and forth. You would have no idea that it's any different than a rock concert, right? Yeah. They're not there to lift up Jesus Christ. They are there to and honestly, uh, I, I forget, man, it's one of these, it's, it's very, very sacrilegious. Um, comedy show, comedy uh, cartoon. Bunch of these tiny little characters. You know, South Park, yeah. I, was, I always think it was South Hill, and I knew that wasn't right. South Park. They did an episode, um, and, I, and I can't remember exactly what it is. I, I, I have it in my notes, I think I'm going to bring it up later, so I probably shouldn't get ahead of myself. But they had an episode of basically, you know, uh, these, these three different characters on South Park are all going to try to make it big in the music industry. And this one says, oh, I'm going to go try to you know, be a rock star. I'm going to try to be a country music star. This guy says, well, I'm, going to be a, I'm going to be a contemporary Christian music star. Now, this is South Park. Very, very sacrilegious. has nothing whatsoever to try to be um, God-honoring or anything like that. I'm going to try to be a, a contemporary Christian music star. And they start laughing at it. Oh, you know, why is this contemporary Christian music? What are you doing? Because that's the easiest way to cross over. I'll get a huge following in all of these churches that will listen to contemporary Christian music, and then I'll make the jump when I, when I have enough, enough people that are following me, and I'll be a bigger star than all of you. That's pretty sad that South Park recognizes that that's exactly what these musicians are trying to do. But don't tell me that these contemporary Christian music musicians are not out there to entertain. That's exactly what they're doing. And many times, the reason they're contemporary Christian music artists is because they couldn't make it anywhere else. And that's the only place that they could actually get a following because any church will let them come in and sing until they get a big enough following that they can cross over. Which, the biggest contemporary Christian musicians have all crossed over. One of the, one of the, one of the earliest ones uh, is Amy Grant. And I remember, I mean, I, just, I, I never really listened to Amy Grant to tell you any songs that she actually sang, but I remember when Amy Grant first made it uh, big in contemporary Christian music. Won all kinds of different awards and everything else. And I also remember very plainly when Amy Grant came out and said, I'm not a Christian. I don't hold to those beliefs. I am I'm switching over completely to secular music. And I think she tried to cross back into that here and there and whatever else. This is probably 25 years ago when she made that jump. Maybe maybe a little bit less than that. But I remember specifically, and I, and I can't remember her exact words, but I, as, a, as a young kid, I remember and, you know, I didn't know anything about the contemporary Christian music movement or any of that kind of stuff. I remember just thinking, wow, how ridiculous. 
like you put together all the, the performances on the stage and the children's spotlights and all that stuff. They use the same lingo as all of these secular musicians do. You know, they talk about the stage and the set and the artists and the industry and the charts and all that stuff. I mean, there's there's top charts in contemporary Christian music. There's you know, there's a reason why we don't have top charts in hymns, right? <laughs> I didn't make it big on the number one, you know, Christian hymn chart, you know, because I sang a hymn or something. I mean, just, it, you don't have that because it's a completely different mindset. And so the packaging of the music and the band is done the same way. They have publishers, they have albums, they have concerts, all of those things because they're there and they're paying. Now, I don't for one minute deny that some preachers are great and paying, but I do deny that that should be the reason they do anything. Turn to one last passage for them. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Here's what it comes down to. If you minister in music here, we want your music influences to be church influences, not worldly influences. Contemporary Christian music wants and has the exact opposite. That just shows very clearly on both sides. But Galatians chapter 1, verse number 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be served of Christ. We're not choosing music in our church based on the scriptural reason of edification. And sooner or later, no matter how sincere we are, our church is going to be an experience of writing negative consequences. It's not a compromise that I'm willing to make. Amen. Our music should be for the glory of God. But our music is for the edification of those who are in the church. And if the songs that we're singing are not doctrinally correct, that's not edifying. Right? If the songs that we're singing are not uh, drawing people closer to Christ or convicting people, I mean, and that's what I'm saying. I wonder how I've done my best to do great songs. Right? Did you think of right? Great songs. Convicting. Right? When we all get to heaven. Great song. That's encouraging. And there's so many songs in our hymn book that are like that. What is that for? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody for your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Right? In Colossians, we looked at that one. Teaching and admonishing one another. That's what the purpose of church music is. And you get away from that, you lose everything in the culture of the church because it's going to take you in a completely different direction. Why do we do church music? In one word, it's for edification. For edification. So the way that it's sung or played, the words that are sung, all has to focus around and revolve around edification. Now, not next week because we have our church music library, but the week the week or two after that, we're going to talk about why we don't do contemporary Christian music. What, what the problem is, because we've already addressed a decent amount of this, what the problem is with contemporary Christian music. It's not just that I'm up here saying, oh, their churches are huge and ours are small and so we go. Right? And, and sometimes it might sound that way. You know, we're jealous of you because you have a large crowd and you can draw people in there. We can't do that, so we're going to bless everything that you're doing. It's wrong. We're going to say that, and we need to back it up. Yeah. We need to show why it's wrong. We're good at criticizing. We're not good at, at, at the Baptist as a whole. 
I'm saying why and explaining why. So that's what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks. All right. So um, I think it'll be very, very helpful for us. We do church music for the edification of saints. And if the, the saints in the church are not edified during the music, then we lose the whole worship. The more you get away from that, the more your church is going to go in the wrong direction, the more you're going to develop a culture that's going to cause a whole lot of negative consequences for that church for years and years and years, all the way down the road. Important. Let's pray. Father, love you. Thank you so much for how good you are to us. I know this is certainly more teaching than preaching, but it's, I, I believe it's necessary. It's important for us to understand this. We do so much music in this church. We do so much singing. We do so much uh, of, of just uh, fellowshipping around music. It's so important that we understand why we do it. And God, I pray that all of our music would be for the education of those that are here in this room. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. What's saying we'll close with our song?